It's Friday 14th of April and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder and coming up we'll be hearing about how the world's newly crowned most populous country can make the most of its demographic dividends. But now I'm joined by Group Chief Economist Neil Shearing. Hi Neil. Hi David. I wanted to start by asking about the state of play in the world of bank turmoil. I asked Paul Ashworth ahead of our US coverage a couple of weeks ago if the crisis had passed. He said yes in that no more US financial institutions had fallen over. But he also said we're now going to have to grapple with the after effects of the ructions of the past few weeks. Are we seeing those after effects now? Well, I think the the honest truth is that it's too soon to say, or at least it's not yet clear in the data. So we're following a lot of the the data coming out from the Fed in particular on the state of banks' balance sheets. They they produce weekly data. But disentangling the messages from that is incredibly difficult. It looks to us like the acute phase of this crisis has passed. As you mentioned when you, in your conversation with Paul, uh, if, if we look at measures of financial stress, and we've just published our latest financial stress monitor, which clients can find on our website, those have all eased substantially from the the highs that we saw earlier last month. And it looks like some of the the acute pressures in the banking system are fading as well. So if we look at the amount of banks and and the volume that banks are borrowing from central banks in terms of funding, that appears to have eased back too. So promising signs that we're, we're through the acute phase. What we don't yet know, though, is the extent to which commercial banks respond to all of this turmoil by tightening their own lending standards. That will become clear over the coming months and quarters. We'll have to wait really for for evidence in the hard data and from senior loan officer surveys, for example, on the survey data, and also some survey data of businesses about what they're telling us about how they're finding it in terms of accessing credit. That's all going to take time to play out. Our sense is, though, that banks will respond by reining in and tightening lending standards, and that will contribute to to the effects of tighter monetary policy in the real economy. So it sounds like the, the the more intense phase of of the crisis is over. It sounds like we are going to have to be picking through the data in, in in the coming weeks and months to work out exactly what the legacy is. You suggest that there's going to be a lot of noise out there. I mean, if if you're a client, what's the best way to track what's what's happening with banks and and credit availability? It's extremely difficult, I think, is the honest answer. And particularly when you start to disentangle monetary aggregates and what they're telling you and what they're not telling you, importantly, there's a lot of analysis out there that's quite faulty. Having said that, we will look at the monetary aggregates trying to disentangle what they're telling us. The senior loan officer surveys, as I mentioned, they're a really good source of information in terms of what, in terms of banks lending intentions. The problem is that they're not very timely. So we won't see the the full effects of this turmoil play out until the Q2 surveys, which won't really start to be published until July. So we have to wait a while on on that. In terms of financial conditions more generally, we are about to publish updated financial conditions indices for advanced economies, which again, clients will be able to find on our website. Advanced clients can download the underlying data. And and that, I think, will give us the most timely read on how financial conditions in the, in the real economy are starting to evolve. And we'll be alerting all clients about those financial conditions indices. And we'll also be holding an online briefing in the coming week just to, to walk clients through how they work and, and what they're showing in terms of the, the the tightness of financial conditions. One thing they do do is, is sort of break down conditions on a regional basis 
it does seem like a lot of the focus has been on the US. Is this a US-centric issue? Our, our Eurozone team was arguing over the past week that there aren't the signs of distress there that we've seen in the US and Switzerland, despite pretty sizable outflows. The latest UK credit data didn't really capture the full brunt of the March events. But in both cases, it doesn't seem like there have been these systemic concerns around deposit flight that we've, we've seen in the US, have there? That's right. There doesn't appear to be the same kind of eruptions across the European banking system that we've seen in the US. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that the European banking system itself is ironically better regulated than that in the US insofar as banks are uh, holding more capital. The stress tests by the ECB and other national regulators extend to a far greater number of banks in Europe than is the case in the US in terms of their, their thoroughness. And the second reason is that the monetary architecture or the financial architecture in the US is a bit different from that in the, the Eurozone. So in the US, the presence of money market mutual funds means that as interest rates at the short end have gone up, returns on those funds have increased. And that's had the effect of because deposit rates in the banking system have not kept pace with returns on money market mutual funds, it's tended to suck deposits from the banking system into those funds. And that's obviously put pressure on commercial banks' balance sheets. Either they have to raise deposit rates to try and stem the outflow of, of deposits, or they have to shrink their balance sheets. Well, because we don't have uh, the same uh, money market mutual funds in the Eurozone that we have in the US, we've not seen the same the same problem there. So a couple of reasons why there doesn't seem to be the same pressure in, in the banking system in Europe that, that we've seen in the US. And where does this all leave regulation? You've just, you've just mentioned the difference between European and US regulation. For the US, it's worth remembering that rumours around SVB's deposit flight really only crystallised on, on the Wednesday when it announced this share sale to raise capital. And then just over 48 hours later, the bank had collapsed. Given how quickly this all occurred and the role of WhatsApp and other messaging services in fueling this speculation, how's today's bank regulator expected to keep up? I think it's a really good point. Obviously, the, the full history of SVB's collapse and the lessons that we can learn from it will be written in due course. And over the passage of time, that will become clear. But I think one of the lessons is that in a modern digital world, bank runs just happen much more quickly. You're right that SVB was the second largest banking collapse in US history, yet it happened in a matter of hours. It was pretty much 36 hours from when rumors started to swirl to, to the actual collapse of the bank. And in that environment, regulators have to kind of keep up, I think. So it's remarkable in that context that access to some central bank lending windows are still time restricted. You can only access them at certain hours of the day and not over the weekend. So I think the regulators do have a way to go to kind of keep up with digital developments and, and perhaps modernize some practices such that it makes them a bit more responsive to, to, to bank runs in the future. My last question this week, it's on a very different topic. The IMF had its World Economic Outlook out. It's devoted a chapter to the risks around what it calls geoeconomic fragmenting. It shows a greater awareness of this major long-term trend in the global economy that we've been working with clients on since last year that we call fracturing. Six months on from the publication of our big fracturing report, how are things looking on that front? Well, I think the fact that the IMF has dedicated a chapter of the WIO to this subject gives you a sense of the extent to which this has entered the mainstream as a concept. When we uh, started talking about fracturing, probably I mean, six months ago that we published the report, it was 12 months ago that we started the work, it was a bit controversial and we got a bit of pushback. Now the IMF has dedicated the chapter 
uh, to the subject in its WIO, it illustrates the extent to which it's no longer a fringe idea, it's entered the mainstream. With that being said, I think there are a couple of important differences between our analysis and the analysis of the the, the fund that was published over, over the past couple of weeks alongside the spring meetings. One is that, almost by definition, um, the fund presents fracturing as something that, if only we could overcome this, then the world economy would be better off, which in and of itself is true, but it ignores the point that this fracturing is not a challenge to be overcome. It's something that people on both sides, both the US side and the China side, are act- actively pushing for in some areas. So it's not necessarily a challenge to be overcome. I think it's a challenge that investors are going to have to, to manage and risks that we have to kind of factor into our into our forecasts. I think that the second point is that is that nuance about areas of fracturing. Often the fracturing debate is presented as the world is splintering down the middle. There's this big schism. And actually, I don't think that's the case. If you think about what's driving fracturing, it's really the return of geopolitics as an as a influence on both policy decisions and economic outcomes. And that will influence the extent to which fracturing unfolds and, and where it unfolds. So there's no good geopolitical reasons to unpick a lot of the global supply chains and global trading system. But there are in some areas like technology, for example. So I think we'll see fracturing proceed at a different pace in different areas and to different extents in different areas. And one consequence of that is that the world won't just split in two down the middle and there'll be this big bifurcation of the global trading system and global financial system. It will happen in some areas, but it won't happen across the board. I think a final point that's worth noting is that the world is not splitting down the middle, as is often characterized. The according to our analysis, the, the countries that align with China are generally smaller in terms of GDP and they tend to be overwhelmingly commodity producers. Whereas the US aligned block is both larger in terms of GDP and is economically more diverse. There's manufacturers in there, there's a few commodity producers, there's rich countries, there's developing countries. So it's a bit more diverse. And that means the US bloc perhaps has a a bit more scope and a bit more flexibility to adapt to to the challenges posed by fracturing. So lots in there. Good news that it's entering the the mainstream as as a concept, because I think it's going to be an absolutely critical theme that shapes global economic outcomes over the next decade but some important differences between our analysis and and some of the analysis out there. That was Neil Shearing on economic fracturing and bank stress. And watch out for our new financial conditions indices. Now, according to UN forecasts, India has just become the world's most populous nation overtaking China. This is momentous. According to the Madison Historical Database, a very long run estimates, it's the first time in something like 300 years that the number of Indians exceeds the number of Chinese. But what does it mean for India's economy? Shilin Shah, our deputy chief EM economist who leads our India coverage, has spent years analysing what demographics means for its economic potential, and recently published an in-depth report which explains just what's needed for the country to get the most from its demographic dividend. I spoke with him recently about his findings, and I started by asking him what having the world's biggest population means in economic terms. Well, in and of itself, it means very little for India and indeed any other country But I think for them to reap the benefits of having a big population, they need to combine growth in the size of the workforce with rapid increases in worker productivity. Um, In other words, that's the the output of each worker on average. Really, we think the key to achieving this is the development of a competitive manufacturing sector. 
It's been the gateway to prosperity for many other Asian economies in the past. If you think of Korea in the 60s, for example, and more recently China in the 2000s. And we think that the same could be true of India if it were to successfully develop its manufacturing sector. Can you talk a bit more about what manufacturing offers a developing economy that that the services sector doesn't? Yes, of course. I mean, it's a fairly well-worn argument, but it goes that it's relatively easy to increase the productivity of fairly low-skilled workers by taking them out of other sectors of the economy. Typically, that would be um, in agriculture. But I think what's relevant in India's case is in low-end services taking those workers out and putting them into work in factories using machines that require only quite basic training to operate. And it's much harder for these workers to operate in internationally traded services sectors. I suppose the exception to that would be very high productivity, high skilled services, such as IT. India, of course, has a burgeoning IT sector, but it only employs a very small percentage of the overall workforce and the amount of training that is needed for workers to operate in those high-end services will always act as a a limit on its growth, we think. In the manufacturing sector itself, labor productivity tends to be stronger than in low-end services. This just reflects faster technological progress, the relative ease of adopting advanced technologies from abroad, but also the tradable nature of most manufactured good. And that encourages firms to compete in markets well beyond domestic borders. And I think what's really pertinent for India, by growing its manufacturing sector, it can bring millions of women into formal work. So if we look at the the World Bank measure, for example, India's female labor force participation rate is is only around 20%, which is which is actually lower than, than it is in some very deeply conservative countries such as Saudi Arabia. Manufacturing has been the gateway for rapid rises in female employment in the likes of Vietnam and Bangladesh. I think things like female-only factories can go a long way to easing concerns about women working away from home in, in what are traditionally quite sort of patriarchal societies. Um, and India has a very low share of women in its formal sector. And there's a big debate about just how low that share is and, and, and what the reasons behind it are. For example, if more young women uh, are staying in education, that's obviously a good reason to stay out of the workforce, for example. But but really, the key point, I think, is that the relative number of women of working age that end up in formal employment um, in India is, is, is very low on any measure that you look at. Now, that is problematic, but what it does mean is that there's a great deal of upside if the right policies are put in place. And would you be able to quantify the impact of increasing female labour force participation in India? What if, I mean, if the government did everything right, what would that mean in terms of output? Well, we can certainly have a stab at quantifying it. I mean, there are a number of moving parts. I think the big picture is that the impact of increasing female labour force participation could be very significant. So we find that if we saw a 10 percentage point rise in the rate of female participation, then the economy could be up to 15% larger. You talked earlier about how this is a fairly well-trodden path in terms of developing an economy. If so, why has India been so slow to nurture its manufacturing sector? I think a lot of it comes down to the politics. If we think about the types of reforms that are often required to boost the manufacturing sector in any given economy, they are often politically quite contentious. I'm thinking here about easing labour laws to make them more flexible, for example, which means that workers could be hired and fired 
with less sort of onerous regulation. Other examples include land acquisition laws in order for multinationals to actually go and buy land and to start setting up plants and factories. So politically, not the most popular types of reforms. Under more autocratic regimes, these types of reforms can be implemented without the threat of punishment in the polls. But that just simply isn't the case in India. So I think it requires a much more sort of incremental approach to easing these sorts of restrictions, which can take many, many years to to be fully realised. That, I guess, feeds into this, this question about whether we are seeing the kind of joined up all hands approach to welcoming manufacturing FDI that that was so successful in China. Narendra Modi's been pledging for years that his government would create a more welcoming environment for manufacturing. I'm guessing from what you're saying that hasn't really translated into into enough on the ground change. So when the Modi government came to power in 2014, it came in with a great deal of fanfare. It was certainly making the right noises about opening up India and implementing more business-friendly policies. I think in reality, the government's approach to economic reforms has been pretty stop-start and largely determined by the political climate. What we've often found is that as key state elections um, approach, we tend to get stalling in reform momentum. And then when there are gaps in the electoral calendar, momentum tends to pick up. But I think things are still moving in the right direction, albeit slowly. It's difficult to know exactly when you're in the moment when we are about to reach a turning point or when, we, when we're in the midst of a turning point, easier to spot in hindsight. But I do think that the decision by Apple last year to shift more of its manufacturing into India and you know, by extension out of China could actually prove pivotal, particularly if that helps to form a an ecosystem of suppliers or encourages other multinationals to follow suit. And I think If that is the case, then it could lay the foundations for a development of a competitive local manufacturing sector in India. So these pledges to boost India's manufacturing capabilities uh, a lot predate the Trump presidency and and this recent surge in US-China tensions. How has rising geopolitical risk changed the calculus with regard to manufacturing investment and and indeed Delhi's approach to increasing that investment? Well, I think we should just step back a bit. I mean, the potential for India to be a big manufacturing hub has always been there, really. I mean, as we've been discussing, it's got very large labour supply, costs are are relatively low. And with the help of incremental reforms on the labour market in, in particular, then it's a country that multinationals will always be interested in, I think. And I think what's happened with the increase in tensions between the US and China is that it has meant India really stands out as a prime candidate to benefit from the so-called French-shoring of supply chains out of China and into alternative destinations. And I think that if we do see further progress on reforms in this increasingly fractured global economy, then, then India could really be one that stands out over the long term. Our long run forecast sees India as the world's third largest economy in 2050, just behind the US and China. To what extent does that placing reflect any success that the government has in, in unlocking its manufacturing potential? Yeah, we see India rising to become the third largest economy in the world um, over the next couple of decades, overtaking Japan and Germany in the in the rankings. And our forecasts do imply um, moderate success in terms of developing its manufacturing sector. We do think that the labor force participation rate amongst women will increase partly because of the development 
of a stronger manufacturing base. We also expect productivity gains to be relatively strong in India, and lots of that is being generated in the manufacturing sector. However, I think context is still important here. The types of growth rates that we're expecting in India are pretty impressive, around 5 or 6% we think would be sustainable over the long run, but that does fall a long way short of the very best performing EMs throughout history. If you look at, again, somewhere like China as an example, we're obviously setting a very high bar, but it was able to grow by 10% a year for several years. We don't think India will reach that rate of growth over the long run. That was Shilin Shah on India's economic potential. I'll post his report on the podcast page, along with our latest on the legacy of the banking turmoil and our work on global economic fracturing. But that's it for this week. You can find all our insights on our website, capitaleconomics.com. And for complete access, interactive data, powerful charting tools and more, check out CE Advance, our premium service. But until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.